back to the planet today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, August 27th, 2021. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how was your vacation, buddy? Maddie, it was so great. I am refreshed, rejuvenated, relaxed. I am all of the R's. I'm so just ready to get this thing back underway. It feels like I haven't done this show in five weeks. <laughs> That's awesome. You're ready to go then. <laughs> I'm absolutely stoked. It feels it feels like I uh, I just woke up on Christmas morning. The boys are back in town. <laughs> <laughs> if you're new here, welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we are happy to have you as a listener. Before we get started, we wanted to read another listener review on Apple Podcasts as a thank you for supporting the show. I'm just reading this right now. <laughs> it's a good one. All right. So Hope and Siege says, to the sick, it is medicine. To the hungry, it is a hot meal. To the thirsty, it is a quenching glass of cool water. To the lonely, it is a partner. To the anxious, it is the sound of waves crashing over a beach. If this podcast has millions of fans, then I am one of a million. If it has a hundred fans, then I am one of a hundred. If it has one fan, that one fan is me. <laughs> we have been sitting on that review for a while, and I just finally, finally sent it. So thank you for the high praise, Hope and Siege. Uh, we are somewhere between one fan and 100 fans, so we appreciate you being one of them. That is so beautiful. <laughs> So that is so poetic. I can't even begin. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can give you a shout out on the show as a thank you for listening. And if you left us an early review, you know, a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, don't be afraid to do it again as the show has evolved because maybe your review will evolve as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's go ahead and get into our quick hits. So we're going to do a few extras this week to make up for last week. So let's get right into it. So the first one comes from Ivan Penn of the New York Times and is titled, California Panel Backs Solar Mandate for New Buildings. Last week, California regulators voted to require builders to include solar power and battery storage in many new commercial structures and high-rise residential buildings. The California Energy Commission, which is made up of five people, unanimously approved the proposal and it should be included in a revision to the state's building code in December, but that's not guaranteed. The Building Standards Commission doesn't have to adopt the proposal, but that being said, Lindsay Buckley, who is a spokeswoman for the Energy Commission, states that the Building Standards Commission has never rejected a proposal like this after approval by the Energy Panel. So things are looking good. The commercial buildings that are affected by the plan include hotels, offices, medical offices, retail and grocery stores, restaurants, schools, theaters, auditoriums, and convention centers, among others. So pretty all-encompassing. You can say pretty much any new building, which is awesome. The state energy plan would go into effect on January 1st, 2023, and it also calls for new homes to be wired in ways that encourage conversion of natural gas heating and natural gas appliances to electric sources. So this is just an all-around positive step for renewable energy. 
And with 70% of California's electricity being consumed and roughly a quarter of its greenhouse gas emissions being produced by homes and businesses, this is a solid policy that would drastically reduce the state's reliance on fossil fuels. As you probably guessed, the proposal was not universally supported, with opposition coming from Southern California Gas, which provides much of the natural gas to Southern Californian businesses, homes, and industries. They called the proposal a reckless push for building electrification and recommended an appliance replacement program instead. And this brings up sort of an interesting discussion about priorities when it comes to these sort of policies, and specifically prioritizing energy efficiency over cleaner energy. It's obviously a good thing if our appliances are more efficient and if outdated energy consumers are replaced with newer models that require less energy for the same function. But that doesn't solve the issue of fossil fuel consumption. Better energy efficiency is an ally of renewable energy, but for some reason, and I will let you guess what that reason is, opponents of renewable energy transitions always fall back on, we should focus on energy efficiency, not cleaner energy. Yeah, this is great because it'll just give so many more incentives to people to just transition to renewables even quicker than they probably were going to. Yeah, it's a good point because, you know, if you say this is part of the state's building code, you have to do this. It's not like people are going to go out of their way to try to avoid it. So all the new buildings, whether it's commercial, residential, it looks like they're all going to have more solar energy available to them, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get into the next one. So this next one comes from The Guardian, where Damian Carrington writes, once you understand the terrible cost of doing nothing, climate action is actually a bargain. Yeah, so just for full transparency here, Damian Carrington is The Guardian's environmental editor, and he's writing an opinion column here. So he cites several studies throughout his piece, but his words are opinion, even though they're backed up by facts. So we're comfortable echoing his sentiment, but we just wanted to highlight that, again, this is an opinion column. So Carrington brings up an idea that we've spoken about on our show a few times, the cost of climate inaction. Headlines always focus on the cost of climate change mitigation or the cost of adapting to the impacts of climate change, but the cost of letting it happen is almost always left out. He talks about how the IPCC's report this month said that getting to net zero emissions will avoid terrible costs and suffering from unrestrained climate change. Cutting fossil fuels also reduces air pollution, which kills about 40,000 people a year in the United Kingdom, where he is from. He also quotes Chris Stark, who is the head of the UK's Climate Change Committee, as saying, I would argue we can't afford not to do net zero because reaching that number by 2050 would only create a four-month delay in economic growth over the next 30 years, but the alternative would be so much worse. Swiss Re, who is the major insurance company that does a lot of risk analysis as part of their business, estimates that there will be a 10% loss of global GDP by 2050 without further climate action now. So Carrington also mentions how if we don't do anything to fix climate change, unfairness in society would just be made worse. Low-income communities are disproportionately exposed to flood risk, for example, as brought up by Sam Hall, who's the director of the Conservative Environment Network. These are the sort of discussions that need to be brought up every single time someone mentions how expensive climate change mitigation will be. No one is disagreeing that it will be costly. 
and wealthier nations will be bearing the brunt of that cost. But the cost of doing nothing is so much higher, and the wealthier nations are wealthier because of the same processes that got us into this mess through rapid industrialization. Yeah, to all the people who are like, oh, it's too expensive, all the renewable energies are too expensive, no, we're not doing it. Gas is cheaper, whatever. How about a 10% loss in global GDP by 2050? I think that should be enough of a wake-up call to be like, whoa, if I'm about the money, then here's the money. Dude, and just to like bring it back a, a couple steps, like let's say you know you have a car and you don't get your oil changed ever, and you're like, oh, I don't, I don't feel like spending the 40 bucks that it costs at Valvoline to <laughs> go get it oil changed. All of a sudden, your engine just gets destroyed and you're spending thousands of dollars to make up for something that could have been 40 bucks every couple of months. So it's the same principle. Like if we don't chip away and we don't start doing something drastic now, (laughs) how how much more are we going to spend? (laughs) Absolutely. And that was a call out for anyone with a 2014 Honda Civic, go get an oil change. (laughs) It's the right thing to do. All right, so let's get into the next one. This is a cool story from BBC where Tessa Wong writes, There and back again, the epic adventures of China's wandering elephants. So this isn't as much news as it is just a cool story. So Nick and I figured we would spend a couple minutes sharing it. 17 months ago, in March of 2020, a herd of elephants in southern China took off on an adventure presumably to get off the grid as the COVID-19 pandemic was escalating. About 14 elephants left a national nature reserve in the southern Yunnan province near the border of Myanmar and Laos, where they lived in this huge, lush forest, a little bit bigger than the city of Jacksonville, Florida. Um, They also estimated that it's 1.5 times as big as the city of London. So we're talking about a huge forest here. And at first, this wasn't really a big deal since elephants are known to roam throughout the region frequently enough where the city of Pur runs elephant canteens, as they call them, to feed the elephants when they decide to stop by. They usually return home shortly, but I guess these elephants didn't want to return home and face lockdowns, so they stayed outside (laughs) as long as possible. On a more serious note, conservationists believe the elephants left to find food. Another Chinese conservation success story here, like the panda that we talked about a couple weeks ago, the province's elephant population has nearly doubled in the last 30 years to about 300 elephants. So that's going to lead to more competition for the same food supply. There was also a drought that lasted about a year before the elephant's journey began, and that also limited their food supply. So deforestation and encroaching farmland are believed to be the third reason why they left to find food. And what's interesting about deforestation is that to combat it, authorities have boosted forest protections. And this means that the forest has a thicker canopy, which is going to block off more sunlight. And that means there's fewer edible plants in the understory for the elephants to actually eat. So you have all of these different factors rolling in that basically just mean it's hard to find food, and this herd decided to leave to go find new food sources. Yunnan officials set up an emergency task force to guide the elephants away from cities and villages, which includes 25,000 staff members. The elephants have caused 150,000 people to evacuate their homes and $1 million in damages, which includes eating crops 
but also breaking into people's houses to eat their food. (laughs) The task force has been monitoring them with almost 1,000 drone flights and captured some awesome images of them taking mud baths, doing a little wrestling, and more. So in April, two of the male elephants left the group to go home, and males tend to travel alone, but they likely would not survive the trip without having a travel buddy. So for this reason, when a third elephant left in June, the task force actually tranquilized it and transported it home. The herd did experience at least one calf birth during the trip, which is more good news because baby elephants are simply the best. Apparently, Chinese people could not get enough of the elephant updates, and the drones, scientists studying them, and even paparazzi began to report more frequently on them. 500 kilometers or 300 miles later, they had reached the province's capital of Kunming, which is the furthest any Yunnan wild elephant had ever traveled. The elephants were showing signs of stress and heat exhaustion, but decided it was time to go home. So the task force had to deploy thousands of people to basically just lay out food, set up electrical fences, create paths, and even sprinkle water on roads just to make sure that the roads were cool enough for the elephants to travel on them. And this was all that way they could lead the elephants to the only bridge suitable for their travel back to the reserve where they live. (laughs) So it's just like this whole thing turned into a huge ordeal and they're currently headed in the right direction to return home. So let's all keep our fingers crossed that they make it home safely and make it home safely soon. That way they don't run into any other issues or heat exhaustion and you know, they'll be safe and happy ending probably leads to a movie about this (laughs) because like, I cannot believe all of these different things that are going on with this. This is like Goldilocks meets um, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants meets um, the Kool-Aid Man. Breaking into houses. (laughs) Like, what the hell? Like, an elephant breaks into your home. What's the first thing you do? They kept comparing it to the Lord of the Rings and calling it like this epic adventure, the, the <laughs> fellowship of, of the elephant. I'm like, I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> That's so cool. I wish I had followed this the whole time. Yeah, I didn't even know about it until I think I saw it on Twitter. Um, yeah, somebody posted about it. And I was like, this is too cool not to share. <laughs> All right. So this next one is from Business Insider and Katya Schwenk writes, broken tech is causing a mounting environmental disaster. It's time for tech companies to give us the right to repair our stuff instead of needing to throw it away. Yes, a little callback here to when we brought up e-waste in our discussion about Japan's e-waste recycling program a few weeks back and how they were using that to help create Olympic medals. So this article talks about the lithium batteries used in smartphones and how those smartphones contribute to the billions of tons of e-waste that fills landfills, ends up in the ocean, or pollutes city streets. Something that stood out to me was how the carbon footprint of newer iPhone models is actually higher than older models, and 80% of those emissions come during the production stage. Another takeaway was how newer smartphones use glue as an adhesive instead of tiny screws, which makes it harder for people to repair their own devices. And it's essentially easier to get a new smartphone towards the end of its, quote, useful life then it would be to repair it or replace certain parts. And in a way, this is kind of like the single-use plastic problem of the tech industry. To combat this, President Biden signed an executive order announcing his support for consumers' right to repair, and the Federal Trade Commission voted unanimously in favor of laws supporting the right to repair. 
One way we can see this in practice would be having a phone store repair your broken iPhone without Apple being able to say that the repairs violate the phone's warranty. And I don't know if any of you have ever been to the stores that are, I don't know, like in, in New York City, there's a bunch where you can just pop in, they'll fix your battery or replace it or whatever. But then if you go to take your phone to Apple, they'll say it was tampered with and it's not under warranty anymore. So here's hoping that competition in the marketplace will encourage repairing and reusing the gadgets that we rely on so we can reduce this global e-waste problem. Yeah, this is something I feel like we all like have been thinking the past like literally eight to 10 years. Like you get a new phone and you just know it's not going to last probably more than three or four years. And it's just so frustrating because you spend like so much money on it and then to have it just completely poo-poo the bed. Um, (laughs) It's just really, really frustrating as a consumer um, when you're spending that much money. So I appreciate Katia putting this out there and calling them out like that. Yeah. And hopefully with being able to repair stuff, you know, it might reduce the cost long term because you don't need the best premium Apple parts in your iPhone as long as it's not going to ruin the warranty. Like you can take it to a repair store, get something that works just as well for cheaper. Who knows? I mean, that's a win-win for everyone except probably Apple, but exactly. They're doing fine. And that's why they won't do it. And that's why they won't do it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But anyway, let's get to the next one. So one more from the New York times. um, And this one is from Henry Fountain. And he writes in a first U S declares water shortage on Colorado river, forcing water cuts. Yeah, so before we get into this, I feel like we've mentioned Henry Fountain on this show so many times, so just shout out to Henry Fountain of the New York Times for uh, always giving us a good article week in and week out. This was predicted when the Times wrote about the drought in the western United States, and unfortunately, here we are. The federal government officially declared a water shortage on Lake Mead, which is one of the main suppliers of water to the Colorado River, and something you might remember from your favorite environmental podcast, The Planet Today. Nice. Initially, yeah. Initially, this shortage will mostly impact farmers in Arizona who will be cut off from much of the water they rely upon next year. Smaller consumption reductions are on the way for Nevada and New Mexico as well, but experts unfortunately believe that this is just the start of larger cuts. 40 million people who rely on the Colorado River for their water supply will likely face cuts to that as a result of climate change and intense droughts. Another grim forecast related to this predicts that Lake Mead will be at roughly one-third of its capacity at the end of the year, and that's a level it has not reached since before the Hoover Dam was constructed in the 1930s. One interesting quote from the article, the mandatory cuts referred to as Tier 1 reductions are part of a contingency plan approved in 2019 after lengthy negotiations among the seven states that use the Colorado River water, which are California, Nevada, and Arizona in the lower basin, New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, and Wyoming in the upper basin. Native American tribes and Mexican officials have also been involved in the planning. So this just kind of shows the issues that can arise when it comes to interstate and international policies, like the one that is required for a river that flows through those seven states and into a different country. Some farmers that have been anticipating water reductions have actually switched to less water-intensive crops, and some plan to pump up more groundwater for irrigation. So these are more adaptation measures for our changing climate. Planning for a shortage like this actually began in 2007, before being tightened up in the 2019 contingency plan. Kevin Moran of the Environmental Defense Fund brings up a very important quote to kind of close this part out. 
Our water infrastructure is not just man-made reservoirs and treatment plants. It's the natural systems too. Yeah, and it's crazy that um, 40 million people rely on the Colorado River for their water supply. That is completely shocking to me. I had no idea it was that much. That's like almost 10% of the entire United States relying on the Colorado River for, for water. So yeah, it's significant for sure. Yeah, when you, when you put it into perspective like that, it's staggering. For sure. All right, and our last one is from James Brasool of Planet Citizen. And he writes, Judge Halt's controversial Alaska drilling project. Yeah, so this is some good news to close out our quick hits. Um, not me dancing on the grave of uh, big oil again. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's what I do. Um, for, for some background, this drilling project is proposed in Alaska's National Petroleum Reserve and is projected to emit 500 million metric tons of CO2 in the next 30 years. It was approved by the previous administration and then supported by President Biden, but environmentalists stepped in to sue after it was approved. Judge Sharon L. Gleason of the U.S. District Court for Alaska sided with environmentalists and indigenous rights groups. In her decision, she stated, quote, the administration's approval of the project was arbitrary and capricious because it failed to account for the full scope of greenhouse gas emissions or for the dangers to wildlife, including polar bears. So, hey, Nick, look at that, buddy. Negative externalities being mentioned in a policy decision. (laughs) I don't remember if we've brought up externalities on the show before, so either as a refresher or a new fun fact for the listeners. A negative externality is basically the third-party cost that occurs during any sort of process. So a good way to remember it is, you know, you could think of your electric bill and how that doesn't factor in the cost of carbon emissions. Those carbon emissions are the negative externality because the world and the outside party here are experiencing it. But the only thing that's involved in the cost equation is I turn on my lights. I am charged for how much electricity I'm using. So let's hope this court is able to hold the Biden administration to their word of aggressive decarbonization and that the Willow Project goes from being halted to straight up canceled. Hashtag cancel the Willow Project. Get it going. We tried to, to get the uh, hashtag Ed story is his story on um, Twitter, but it did not quite work out the way we wanted it to. Let's get this going even <laughs> harder. Hashtag cancel the Willow Project. We had two tweets, uh, one from me, one from Nick. So hashtag cancel the Willow Project. Let's hope we get three, baby. That's all we need. Matt, that's all we need in order for it to be a complete success. We will retweet every single person who tweets hashtag cancel the Willow Project at the Planet Today. At Planet Today Pod. I'll make sure to mention it too at the end of the show. Uh, But for right now, Matt, I think it's a good time to take a break. Let's do it. Big, big story when we get back. Stick around. So actually today, Matt, I was... I was uh, on Zoom, as we all are during this pandemic, and you know, Matt, I did something really embarrassing. You're not going to believe me. I took my hand, and I basically wiped my nose while I was on Zoom, and I felt like a total schmuck. Oh my God, your coworkers were probably staring at you like, 
What is up with that man's dirty hands? What is wrong with him? Can't he just use a Vala Alta? What's wrong with him? Just use a handkerchief, dude. Well, we have the perfect product for you if that's what you're looking for next time your nose is a little itchy. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.com and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot com and code TPT. Guys, don't use your sleeve. Don't use your hand. Don't be a schmuck like me. Get the Vala Alta. Your life will be so much easier. Welcome back to the planet today. And today we are going to talk about Tropical Storm Henry and how the storm was actually more rare than you might think. Okay, before we get into this, is it Henry or is it Henri? Because I Oh my god. I have no idea. Did I say like, Henry? I'm, I'm being, you did, and I don't know. I thought it was Henry, but then I was like, no, the I is definitely French. Yeah, it's it's Henri, and I've been saying Henri too, but it's definitely, <laughs> I don't know why I said Henry. It's definitely Henri. Yeah, I, I honestly, like I, I said Henry at first and then I was like, that's wrong. You know what? We got to stop reading so much and start listening to some cable news. That way we know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so getting into it, I guess, how did the storm impact you? Like, were you already back from vacation when the weather started to get dicey or were you still on the road? So we were actually luckily on the road um, from New Jersey and it was actually a beautiful day. The, the day before was absolutely beautiful out the calm before the storm as they say so we really were not affected um until sunday sunday night at about 2 a.m i think it was Jeez, yeah it um it definitely rained here pretty hard sunday and monday but my neighborhood wasn't too bad we did have flash flood warnings here pretty much all day on sunday i think they started at like noon and then didn't go away until like 2 a.m but uh no harm done in my area and, you know, I actually read in the New York Times that Tropical Storm Henri brought two months worth of rain to New York City in just over a day and a half, which makes it the second wettest summer in city history, including the third wettest July on record and the fifth wettest August, with a few days left in August still. So Henri actually brought 4.45 inches of rain on August 21st and 2.67 inches of rain on August 22nd. And then Saturday night, before it even made landfall, New York City received 1.94 inches of rain in an hour between 10 to 11 p.m. Wow. Yeah, it's it's definitely been pretty wet here. And those numbers, you know, I, I have a hard time with rain because I'll read the numbers. And I'm like, wow, four and a half inches of rain sounds like a lot. But I just, I have no idea what that means as opposed to snow where I can say, okay, we got 12 inches of snow and I know I can look outside and see a foot of snow. Yeah. The the Times actually breaks down the 8.05 inches of rain that fell between Saturday and Monday 
um, in a way that makes sense to me. If all of the water that became rain fell in the form of snow, it would have been nearly nine feet. Oh. <laughs> it's just like that's insane. It's, yeah, it's I, I was I was shocked. And I'm, I'm never going to hear three inches of rain and be like, oh, whatever, three inches, like, ever again in my life. Oh, absolutely not. That's insane. Yeah, and then to break it down even further, eight inches of rain weighs approximately 175 million tons and makes up over 42 billion gallons of water. So we're talking about a lot of water and a lot of flooding. And with all of that weight, we're talking about some intense flood risks that can really harm the infrastructure. So some good news, New York City is building a system of pipes that can handle stormwater, but it has thousands of miles of pipes still to go, which could take decades to complete according to certain estimations. I don't know when the system's construction began, and for that reason, I'm going to credit Nick Janusa <laughs> for a couple episodes ago on the planet today where he recommended cities suck up the stormwater and send it back to the ocean with pipes. So there you go. Infrastructure guy <laughs> and co-host and producer. Uh, Matt, you're too sweet. I can't take all those titles. So a storm like this in the northeastern United States is actually a lot more rare than you might think. Sarah Gibbons of National Geographic published a really interesting article on August 20th, and it really put the whole thing into perspective for me. New England had not been directly struck by a storm of this magnitude since Hurricane Bob in 1999. Tropical Storm Henri had winds that tiptoed the line between Tropical Storm and Category 1 Hurricane, but ultimately it hit Rhode Island as a tropical storm. Nick, you're actually in Rhode Island, so how is everything there? It's not great. <laughs> um... Yeah, the southern uh, counties, so like Narragansett area and Newport. Newport, not as bad, but like Block Island and Narragansett got hit really bad. Westerly, Charlestown, uh, those got hit really, really hard. And if you look online, it only takes a couple seconds. Um, look up like some of the damages from the storm. It's really, really bad. And I think I saw a stat that said like there's literally 12 billion in damage uh, in total in the Northeast. Jeez. We had... Just on Sunday, we had about four inches of rain. Uh, and that was when basically the main storm came in. I think it was came in at about 2 a.m. on Sunday night and then went all the way up until about 4 or 5 p.m. Uh, we had lost power twice in that time and then lost it again on Monday Jeez. randomly because there was also, yeah, there was more rain that came through on Monday. Did a lot of people lose power or was that kind of localized to your area? So basically anywhere north of Providence did not really get hit by this that bad. Like every, everyone I've talked to, I, I work with a bunch of people who live up there and it's just like, they, they said they basically didn't even see a hurricane come through. Uh, South County can definitely not say the same thing because Block Island, I think had 65 mile an hour winds at some points, Jeez. which is five miles an hour, uh, five miles an hour away from hurricane force winds. But yeah, we in South County, I think there were 70% of people without power. That's just, that's nuts. And you know, what's, what's interesting about all of the rain that we got and, and the violence of it, that's actually because the storm itself was moving extremely slowly. And this creates a higher flood risk than fast moving hurricanes because those can quickly pass over a region. And Henri just kind of 
came in and just hung out wherever it was and just very slowly crept out to sea. Yeah. Which means you're in a hurricane for, or I guess a tropical storm by the time it made land. You were in that for way longer than one that's just going to rip through and go. What's interesting is that New England rarely gets directly hit by hurricanes because of how the jet stream in the Northern Hemisphere works. There's a high pressure area called the Bermuda High, and that produces winds that keep hurricanes at lower altitudes. Sometimes that high pressure area shifts, which can push a hurricane north. There's also a low pressure system over the eastern United States and a high pressure system over Canada, and those combined to push Henri northwest. So with all three of those wind patterns working together like this, we see this rare circumstance of a tropical storm making landfall in New England. Some other examples of storms close to New England that the article brings up include Hurricane Sandy, which hit New Jersey in 2012, Hurricane Irene, which hit Vermont in 2011, and there was actually two hurricanes that struck New England in 1954 over the course of two weeks. Nick, before when you talked about losing power and then getting it back, and then losing it a second time, I was like, damn, losing it the second time must suck because you're like, well, that sucked, but it's over. Oh, and then you lose it again. Imagine being <laughs> yeah. like, wow, we got hit with a hurricane two weeks ago. That was terrible. Let's start building everything back up. Ah, oh, and then another one just sweeps in. Like the damage that that would do to a region is just mind blowing. Yeah, it's almost like it's not even fixable at that point. Like some of the damages are just so bad from that first storm and then you try and pick yourself up by the bootstraps but it's just you get hit again it's like that's a major major setback yeah i seriously i just can't imagine going through that let alone going through it twice so gibbons goes on to ask if climate change is to blame for Henri's landfall in new england and cites how the ipcc report mentions hurricanes heading further north and further south towards the poles because climate change will increase the range of the tropic regions where hurricanes are popular. Something I found extremely interesting is that Jim Cawson of the Climate Service reported how air pollution in the northeastern United States during the Industrial Revolution is thought to have suppressed some hurricanes. So as air pollution continues to clear, hurricanes in the northeastern U.S. might become more apparent. And I guess this is one of those times where I don't love to make the joke, nature is healing. <laughs> About to flip the whole podcast on its head and be like, we are a big oil podcast because <laughs> we don't want her. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> look, so climate change almost definitely impact Henri due to the warmer ocean water found in its path. The ocean water here is about seven to nine degrees Fahrenheit warmer than what you would normally expect at this time of year. In other words, not great. And part of this may be from natural variability of water temperatures, but it's highly likely that this has some human impact, if not a lot of human impact. I had to make it up to our friends at Yahoo News after our little rib at them two weeks ago. So Jesse Farrell of Yahoo News did a comparison article titled How Henri Stacks Up in New England's Hurricane History. There's a really interesting map they display, and we're going to post it on all of our social medias after this weekend. That way you can take a look. And it shows the paths that different hurricanes have taken in the region from 1950 to 2020, along with their categories. So you get to see the path and how strong that hurricane was. So to kind of sum it all up, Henri caused flooding throughout New England, New York, and New Jersey. 
And as a heads up to our listeners, there are three other tropical disturbances that have been tracked in the Caribbean this week. So hopefully they don't become storms or they just blow out to sea. Um, But needless to say, we're going to keep an eye on them here on TPT and we will cover them as needed. Absolutely. We always do. And in that article uh, that you just referenced, they have like a notable New England storms list. And the <laughs> there's one called the Perfect Storm. And there's also one called the Long Island Express, which both sound... I know one of those is a movie. The other one sounds like it could be a movie. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if... Um, I, I Honestly, I have no idea if the Perfect Storm is a true story. But after looking at that, I was like, it might be. And I might need to go watch George Clooney in that movie again. <laughs> it's a great movie. I've gotten <laughs> flack on it over the years, but um, friend of the program, Ryan Burns, I know he's a huge fan of it. We're both huge fans of it. Yeah, this is a this is a pro Perfect Storm podcast. Uh, nice support circle. If anyone needs it, hit us up in the DMs. <laughs> hit us up on Twitter and let us know. Hey, Matt, Nick, I like the Perfect Storm. Right on. How could you not like it? That's such a star-studded cast. John C. Riley. George Clooney, uh, Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, what a what a movie. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of TPT. Go watch The Perfect Storm. And while you're at it, uh, next week is our first show of September, and we have officially put three months in the books. Woo! And I'll tell you what, we're just getting started here. The first episode of each month is a documentary review. So next week, we will be reviewing After the Spill. It's about coastal erosion in Louisiana and the impact of the oil and gas industry on the state's land. You can watch this one for free with advertisements on IMDb TV. So we're going to post a link to that on Twitter to help you easily find it. Um, I can't do the swipe up thing on Instagram yet because we don't have enough followers. So share our stuff that way we can do it um, because we'll post it that way too if we could. Until that episode drops, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at planettodaypod or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. We would also really appreciate it if you shared the show with a friend. So tell somebody, hey, there's this really cool environmental podcast to listen to and it's a good way to keep up with stuff. Let them know. Share our posts on your social medias. Engage with us. We have fun here. Aside from that, if you have any questions you'd like for us to answer, you can send those in. If you see a story you want us to cover, you can send that too. Special shout out to all the people over the past three months who have been sliding into our DMs and messaging us cool stories. Uh, my friend James Leitner this week sent me the one about the Colorado River. So thank you, James. Third, if you have a guest you want us to have on the show, let us know. We will add them to the schedule and start plugging away at those DMs to make it happen. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'll peel back the curtain a bit. We're starting to run out of reviews to read. We want to keep thanking people. Review, review. Tell your mom. Tell your friends. Tell whoever. Review this show. If you don't feel like it's worth five stars, that is okay too, but you can let us know with a five-star rating and a review, baby. Make your dog uh, a Facebook and then also make your dog an App Store account so he can review this podcast. Yeah, we want exclusively reviews from people's dogs once we get enough (laughs) reviews from people, so... Do your thing. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norden. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norden. We are produced by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every single show, along with co-hosting this bad boy right here. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? Matt, I'm actually taking this a lot of time this week to um, 
promote a cause that is near and dear to my heart, and it is hashtag cancel the Willow Project. Get it going on Twitter. <laughs> I want to see more than two tweets, damn it. Let's do it. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday where we are watching After the Spill. Peace.